Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 3rd, 2016, and my guest is Jason Lusk, Regents Professor and Willard Sparks Endowed Chair of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Oklahoma State University. His latest book and our topic for today is Unnaturally Delicious, How Science and Technology Are Serving Up Superfoods to Save the World. Jason, welcome to Econ Talk. Hi, Russ. Thanks for having me on. Now, this book champions a pretty optimistic view of how technology and science are changing our food for the better. And one of your, not everyone agrees with that. One of your defenses of that position is that it's a very old story. How so? Well, actually, if we look at a lot of the things we enjoy about our food system today, if we took a step back and thought about them, we would probably see that that there actually were advances at some point in the past, whether it's 100 years ago or, or thousands of years ago. So a lot of our, you know, uh, ancient foods, uh, wine, vinegar, these things were technologies at a time. Somehow our ancestors figured out to, uh, if they wanted to preserve items, if they kept them in certain ways, they they wouldn't spoil as quickly, would taste a little better. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the, the plants and animals we have around us didn't exist anything like the form that we see them today you know, even a thousand years ago. So something like corn, for example, the ancestor of corn was probably about the size of your thumb. Um, and it was only through selective breeding, not not always purposeful. You're not but, talking about the corn kernel. You're talking about the co- the whole thing, right? When you that's exactly this. right. So um, uh, yeah, and to give, to give the listeners a bit of a perspective, a, a modern day ear of corn would be about probably the size of your forearm, about the, about the size of a foot. Uh, and so the, the modern ancestor of that several thousand years ago was about the size of your thumb. So that change that happened was because our ancestors picked the bigger ones. They they kept those around, traveled with them, ate the ones that were a little tastier. And then, of course, we've we've used more sophisticated technologies. But um, you know, the more recent one with corn is is hybrid uh, breeding technologies, and that happened in the late, I'm sorry, in the early 1900s. And uh, if you look at a trend of say corn yields, that that innovation of of learning that if we if we were very specific about which strains of corn we crossed with another, just led to an incredible increase in the amount of food we could get for each acre of land. So we, you know, we've been modifying um, the food we've been eating since the beginning. Well, you say here it's a rather. I was uh, shocked and uh, pleasantly surprised uh, to learn that. Broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and kale didn't exist before humans came along. Where'd they come from? Yeah, there's an ancient weed, essentially a, a plant, uh, and, and you can Google it and find it. And it, it doesn't look like much; it just looks sort of like an unruly plant. And you know, over time, people took that same plant and selected it in different ways. So some people focused more on the little flowers uh, and tried to get them to grow productively, and that turned into broccoli. Uh, other people focused on other parts of the the leaves, try to get the leaves to grow uh, bigger, and that turned into into the version of kale we have now. Um, and then you know, just different people doing different things with that same plant led it to uh, cauliflower and to Brussels sprouts. You know, it's really just it's absolutely incredible. You know, of course, this wasn't biotech or GMO kind of stuff. That these were just people trying to you know adapt and and sometimes probably not even all that purposefully were. were using plants in these ways that led to the outcomes we see today. And, and that's not a unique story. It's, it's a story that is true for, for most of our, our modern foodstuffs. Now, a lot of people would argue that that's, that's okay. That was then, this is now. And that, that, those older types of changes that we made, those were, quote, natural changes through breeding and standard methods. A lot of people are very worried or scared about what we're doing to food uh, these days. We're going to talk about some of those techniques, some of the applications of science and technology. But just as a starting point, uh, what would you say to people who are concerned about uh, playing, you know, playing God with our food supply? Yeah, that, that is a question I get a lot. And, you know, sometimes it takes the form of something like, I, yeah, I, I just want food the way God gave it to us. You know, the as we've already been talking about here, the trouble is that, that 
that that's there's there's no there there. Which state of nature are we really talking about? The one ten thousand years ago, the one a thousand years ago? Because we've really had a constant evolution in, in food that we've had. And I suppose one answer to your question is to say that people probably have always been a little skeptical of new foods. It's that's not necessarily a modern phenomenon. So there's some great stories about when the potato was introduced in Europe that people were sort of disgusted by it. They thought they, some some people thought it looked like a long fingers growing and wanted didn't want to eat it. Um, and of course, you can see that even into our more modern world that there was a lot of aversion even to things like uh, pasteurization or uh, even microwaves, for example. So there, there's I think probably a natural human tendency to be a little skeptical of of new foodstuffs, and that probably comes from our, our history, because humans had to be cautious about what we ate. Um, I think Michael Pollan calls it the omnivore's dilemma. We, we, we got to be careful about what we're eating, but we also have to be adventurous enough to find new things and keep ourselves alive. And so, I, you know, yes, we are, we are concerned about a lot of the new food innovations, um, but I don't think that concern is necessarily new. Um, there's probably some dimensions to it that are new and different. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's a natural human tendency. But one of the things I'm trying to do in, in this book and in my other writings is, um, you know, put that gut emotional reaction to the side and, and let's look maybe at a little bit of the evidence. And uh, you don't have to take a new technology just on blind faith. Um, but, you know, let's look and see what the science has to say about it and use the best information we have to see whether it's something we might want to want to use. We'll come back to some of those issues at the end, but so let's start and look at some of the things you're talking about in the book. Uh, uh, really, a fascinating and and uh, a delightful book of of things that are going on in the food world. Some of them will scare some people, I suspect. Some of them, I think, will amaze uh, folks. So I want to start with chickens, uh, which is something I've always enjoyed uh, thinking and reading about. I'm not quite sure why, uh, but I, I'm always fascinated by the incredible productivity of the American uh, poultry industry. And you write that in 2014, the United States was home to more than 300 million hens who laid 86.9 billion eggs for our dinner table, added all up in the average American, ate about 260 eggs last year, an amount roughly equal to what a single chicken lays in a year. That, close quote. Now, that's an American chicken. Of course, um, in the less developed parts of the world, chickens are less productive, which is in itself also interesting. Uh, and those are just egg layers. Of course, for eating of chickens, there's, I guess, something over a billion uh, chickens alive right now. There's, I, I, the last time I looked, there's about four chickens for every person uh, being raised for their dining pleasure. And one of the things people worry about is that, especially egg-laying chickens, uh, they are typically raised and live in cages uh, with very little freedom, very little opportunity to experience uh, whatever a chicken experiences in a different world, a wilder world, to whatever extent that exists. And a lot of people were upset about that and, and promote free-range chickens and, and other uh, solutions. So what do you think of these concerns and um, what has happened in, in some of the – what are some of the innovations people have done to respond to those concerns? Well, the the first thing I'd say about concerns about animal welfare, they're they're certainly valid concerns. They're they're um, they're legitimate, and they're things that we probably want to think about and worry a little bit about. Um, the The trouble is, is and this is true of so many, you know, of, of life's pressing problems, is that the answers aren't nearly as easy as they might first seem. And there are lots of really tough trade offs when it comes to thinking about issues like animal welfare. And you know, there is kind of a common view, I think, in which food and agriculture was was great in the 1940s and 50s. We had all these free range chickens running around on small diversified farms. And man, if we could just get ourselves back there, we'd, we'd be a lot better off. Uh, but you know, the the world we see today is a result, yes, of of a lot of technology changes. And when you think about the question of why would these farmers start bringing chickens indoors in the first place? Um, well, you know, chickens don't like to be outside when it's hot or cold any more than you and I like to. So uh, farmers learned that if they brought them inside, they could protect them from weather. The other thing it did is it protected them from a lot of diseases. And, and surely people are familiar with the bird flu epidemic that hit the U.S. last year, you know, killed millions of chickens. And that happened because um, of contact with wild birds. And, and so, you know, you bring the animals indoors, it, it, at least 
helps protect a little bit against some of those problems. Um, and then we can start feeding them more specialized diets and make them more productive and picking better genetics. So, you know, this wasn't some evil plot to be mean to chickens, <laughs> but um, it's sort of the evolved process that led to this point where, and the driver ultimately isn't some big evil corporation, but I think it's often you and I, the food consumer, we, we, when we went in the grocery store and we saw a lesser price alternative, we, we typically went for it. And, and that competitive pressure led to the sort of outcomes we see today. And, and I think the difficult question is, is what are the alternatives and, and what can we do about it? And, and throughout this book, I, I often will draw contrast before two two ways of dealing with problems. And, and one of the, probably the most popular method, at least the one with the cultural cachet today is the sort of re- romantic traditionalism uh, method. You know, the, So the answer is, if we don't like all these chickens in cages today, well, let's just go back to this way we did it in the 50s. Open the doors, let the chickens run wild. And there's some, there's some merits to that approach. There's some People things- People are doing be- it. People are doing it in their own backyards. Oh, uh, they sure are. In fact, you know, one of my neighbors, in, in fact, has some some- outdoor chickens. So I get, I get to see them pretty frequently when I, when I go for walks uh, in my neighborhood. And, and so, yeah, this, it is taking on that. That's great. You know, people like doing that. Um, and actually those kinds of eggs can be a little tastier uh, because the animals get a little, they get a more diversified diet. Um, but, you know, especially when you look at those statistics you, you quoted about the, you know, just the volume of egg production in the U.S. It's really incredible. I think most people don't really realize how many eggs they're eating and how many animals it takes to produce those. And so to imagine, you know, going from the world we're in today to one where everything was grown in that kind of production system is really hard to imagine. It could be done, but eggs would be certainly a, a lot more expensive and we need a lot more land to do that. And so the other kind of alternative model is, are there some technologies or some changes we can we can think about in terms of new technologies or new, even new economic approaches um, that, that might lead to better outcomes. So most people, if they go in the grocery store today, you know, you can buy cage-free eggs. Uh, you can buy the, you know, if there's no label on it. It's probably eggs from chickens that were, were, were living in these small cages. People call them battery cages. Um, or you might see cage-free eggs. And those are typically the alternatives that are presented to us in the grocery store. There are organic eggs, which are essentially cage-free. But those in those cage-free eggs, we have a lot of ideas about what that means. But the reality probably isn't what most people think it is. It's just a very large barn um, where the chickens are essentially have uh, the ability to roam around wherever they want. And the advantage of that over the cage system is the animals have more freedom of movement and they can exhibit some of their natural behaviors like scratching in the dust and doing the things that chickens have natural urges to do. But the thing a lot of people don't realize is there are a lot of real downsides to that sort of production system too. There's, there tends to be, it's not always the case, but there tends to be higher mortality rates. So the hens die a lot more in those systems. So that, you know, when we think about animal welfare, dying is about the worst it can get. And one of the reasons they die is because this thing called a pecking order, it's a real life mm-hmm. thing. You put a lot of chickens together that that don't know each other, um, they're gonna they gotta they're gonna compete for dominance, and and so they'll peck on each other, and that causes some problems. And and the other issue there too is is there's just a, a lot of uh, it's a really dirty, dusty place in a lot of these open barn systems, and that affects the chickens' hells, but also affects the workers' hells. Um, so you're you're again back to this tough issue of trade-offs. You know, we, we'd really like these chickens to have more room, but when we give them more room, they fight with each other. They tend to die at a little faster rate and it creates these environments that are really smelly and dusty. And so that, you know, I'm not advocating for one type of system over another, but but it's a tough trade-off. And so one of the things I ask in the book is, is there a way through this trade-off? Can, can techno- either a technological development or a development in... Um, I, I, I talk about an economic development, even that you might use to to get us into a better, into a better, a better position. And so, talk about uh, is it JS West? Is that the name of the company? Yeah, this is a company out in California. They're a very large um, egg producer out in California, and um, there's some interesting politics in California because back in 2008, um, on the a ballot initiative was was before the voters there in that state. And they essentially voted to ban these uh, gestation, not gestation crates, I'm sorry, that's for pigs. Uh, they voted to ban the battery cages for chickens. Um, and so the, the producers out in California were, were stuck having to figure out what they were going to do next. 
And they knew about the cage-free systems, and a lot of them did that, but it wasn't clear that was going to be the best alternative. And so as it turns out, there have been some researchers in Europe working on this problem for a number of years, and there was sort of an innovative compromise between this cage system and this cage-free system. And it's a, it's a type of, of cage called a um, enriched cage or a colony cage. Uh, it goes by a variety of different names. But it's an attempt to try to combine the advantages uh, of these two systems. And so uh, what it is is essentially a much larger cage, probably about the size of a, of a king-size mattress. It's, it's about that large. And it's got quite a few birds in it, probably 50 to 60 birds in there. But they've got a lot more freedom of movement, so they can move around a lot more. And it has some amenities that, that aren't there in those tight battery cages. So there, there are perches the, the birds can get up on. There's a little area where they can they can dust bathe. Um, there's a little area. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. There's like a, there's, a good dust bath to open. The right. And there is a little area where they can lay their eggs in a nest. And you know, it's not surprising, but the hens like to to have a little privacy when they're when they're laying their eggs. And so, even though they've got this big cage, they almost always go in that nest area where they where it's a little secluded to to lay their eggs. But you know, you don't have the situation where there's, you know, thousands upon thousands of birds in this big open barn. So the sort of pecking issues and are, are not nearly as problematic. It's still there, but it's not as big an issue. And you don't have nearly the dust problems and the particulate matter emission problems that are there in the cage system. And so it's an innovative compromise. It's also a compromise in terms of cost. If you look at the cost of production, it's somewhere bet- between that um, cage system and that and that. Um, cage-free system. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a new technology. It's, a, it's something that scientists, animal scientists, animal welfare scientists were working on for years as a way to try to think about ways uh, of making chickens' lives better while not increasing our food budget too much. So the coolest thing about this, I just uh, will put a link up to it, is you can actually watch the chickens uh, live uh, on camera. Uh, the Company is very wants to be transparent, and the thing you notice is that uh, they are still pretty crowded together. The other thing you notice is something I've heard from agricultural people as well, which is chickens are really nervous. They they don't really take advantage of um, they're not lounging around, uh, taking advantage of a little extra space. They're they're just they're just nervous creatures. They're <laughs> they're very uh, busy. They are. And when you walk into one of these barns, you know, you, they, when a human comes in, they know it. And they move around and exactly. They're a little a little neurotic, yeah. perhaps. Who knows? It's hard to know. They could be right. very relaxed inside, serene as can be. <laughs> the, the one thing I would say, though, is, yeah, I, I, you are right. And, you, and I think it's awesome that a company like this gives that sort of transparency to let the consumers do see what they're doing for their own for their cell, for their own cells, uh, and some people are kind of surprised by it. They're, they think, "Wow, I didn't realize the the conditions were so small, or or what have you." But you know, the, what I would contrast that though against is not your romantic ideal of what free range chickens are, but rather the reality of what free range yeah. chickens well, are. The, 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 I always say the romantic ideal is a chicken uh, from like the Sound of Music, bounce, you know. Leaping across the, the the valley or the mountainside, singing joyously in their freedom, and it's not what they are. No, in fact, uh, just as a little anecdote, I I uh, will often teach a summer school in in Italy in the summers, and and a couple of years ago, a student in the class, uh, his family ran a farm nearby, and he said, "Would you like to go see my family's farm?" And I said, "Oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be great." And you know, it's just a sort of idyllic sort of small Italian family farm that you might think of had had some, you know, uh, had a little winery there and they had some cows and they had some free range chickens. And uh, where were those free range chickens? Where do they love to be? On the manure pile, they kept right outside of the uh, of where they kept the barn with the with the cattle. And, you know, a lot of those chickens didn't look very, very good either. They were being pecked on by others. And, you know, but that that's that's what free range is. And so when we look online at, you know, say JS West's uh, operation, you know, we don't want to compare it, as you say, to the, to the sound of music or whatever chicken. We want to compare it to the, the real life uh, free range chicken. And they also, of course, have, they're more likely to get parasites. Um, it's, a, it's, a t- it's tough like being in a chicken, I think, in a battery cage or outside a battery cage. Like, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, let's move on to um, 
3D food printing and and the robot chef because that's really some amazing stuff going on there, particularly the robot chef. It is. Um, you know, I saw um, a little, uh, just a, a small excerpt in a sort of industrial magazine about this company that had come to a trade show and introduced this robotic chef. And I thought, man, I have to learn about this. <laughs> this sounds really interesting. So uh, unfortunately, I was able to get in touch with with the maker. So I'll talk about the robot chef first. Um, you know, th- this is not a robot like, say, on the Jetsons where uh, they're moving around talking to you. Um, it's a, it's sort of a, a, think about a large kitchen cabinet almost that has robot arms attached to the top. And these arms can move back and forwards and they can grab things, but they're, they're sort of placed above a kitchen stove with, um, you know, a microwave and some other things near it. But the, the really interesting thing about how this works is that they take chefs, in the, in the case of this um, Moly Robotics, they, they took the winner of the British show uh, Top Chef and asked him if he'd um, put sensors on his arm while he was preparing a meal. And so the computers are recording his every movement as he's preparing his dish. And then they, they can translate those uh, movements. You know, they, they can essentially program the robot to mimic those movements um, in every way of the chef. And for me, the really cool thing about that is I, I, I'm a, li- a little bit of a foodie myself. I like to eat nice food and go to nice restaurants. But, you know, sometimes it's expensive. And uh, sometimes I've tried to make the same dishes as some of the celebrity chefs uh, uh, do in their restaurants with uh, varying degrees of success. But the cool thing about this is, you know, if it's if it's the sensors attached to these chefs' arms, you know, it's, we're getting an exact replica of what they would do if they were in our homes. It's so cool. It, you know, it reminds me of two things that remind me. One is Andy Serkis, who plays, uh, you know, in the Planet of the Apes, he, gets, he wires himself up and acts and it gets transformed into this animatronic uh, creature that has his facial expressions. And it's really, it's an incredible a very similar thing. And the other thing it reminds me of in a much milder way is Ratatouille, where you have the <laughs> right. you know, the rat up and under the hat of uh, of the of the chef who doesn't know what he's doing, but he's basically steering him. And that's what this is. It's the is an algorithm that's reproducing what a great chef in theory would would be it would be it did literally not would do but did. Yeah, and, and you know, in the same way from that movie Ratatouille, that uh, the chef was able to kind of uh, pull a fast one over his diners by thinking he was the one creating this great meal. You know, we could do that for our friends and family. Look at this great meal I prepared. <laughs> and all, all the while, we've got some robot in the back room uh, doing it for us. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I think that it's just a fascinating technology. It's not on the market yet, so it's something they're still still in development. But I think. They hope to have some models ready for sale in, in 2017. So, yeah, I, you know, whether this takes off or not, it's hard to tell, but it's, it's certainly a really cool idea. And it's a really cool idea when we think again about our, our past of with food, because if we go back even 50 years, think about your mom or your grandmother and, or, and how much time they spent in the kitchen. And there's just been incredible change over time. Part of it's social norms, so... We men are, are sort of expected to help out a little more in the kitchen. That's probably a good thing. But a lot of it's just technology differences. And, and you can see it in these time use surveys that try to monitor how people are spending their time throughout the day. And the average woman today spends half as much time in food preparation, about 80 to 100% less time in meal cleanup. And that's, I mean, that is amazing. Those aren't chores, especially the meal cleanup part that really anybody likes. Um, cooking, you know, we might like, but often... You know, when I cook, it's on my own terms. Um, but, you know, there can be a little drudgery to it if we have to do it every day, day in and day out, especially we're shuttling the kids to soccer and trying to make meetings and all those sorts of things. And so the ability to turn those jobs over to a robot or for food processors to give us foods that are, are more convenient, it's really, I think, really increased the quality of life. Well, you'd think that, you know, the next step would just be a box, you know, a quote, when we call, you know, we call a Cuisinart a food processor, but what we really want is a, a, a food processor where you just open a drawer, you put in a bunch of ingredients, you call up the right recipe and it does all the things inside the box, right? It's sort of like a robotic uh, surgeon, but you don't have to have anybody guiding the arms. You'd think that would just be the future, Right. Yeah, what, what we really want is the uh, the Star Trek food replicator where, yeah. you know, Captain Kirk just goes, pushes a button and, and you got something waiting for you right there. That's 
that's the ideal. And that doesn't mean people can't still cook if they want to, but- no, I use a fountain you, pen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now and then. Not often. I wish I used to, I wish I had more reason to use. I'm trying to think of reasons to use my fountain pen. I'm enjoying the tactile thrill of old fashioned <laughs> writing, but, uh, but yeah. the, three, the, the, the 3D printing is of a kind of Captain Kirky. It is. It's it's moving us in that direction. It's not all the way there, but it's it, it, it's a step in that direction. And um, so there have been scientists working. Uh, there's some some researchers at both Cornell and at Columbia that have been working on this for probably 10 years now. And so people have probably seen the 3D food printers that print things in plastic and you give it some shape or some figurine and it, it can replicate that. And, and the, the 3D food printer works in a similar way, but instead of of, of dealing in plastics, it's dealing in foodstuffs. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. A, a lot of the applications today are, are frankly with things like chocolate that are easily moldable and that you can sort of melt and get into a, a more liquid state and that will, will dry up, but they're moving in a lot of other directions too. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, one of the interesting stories is that one of the first people to print a 3D printed food was a, a high school girl for her, um, her, her science fair project that she got her hands on a, one of these printers that the folks at Cornell were putting out and she uh, affixed a uh, chocolate, um, a, a device that would squeeze out the chocolate in just the right proportions. And uh, she, she won her science fair. And um, I think they, they've taken the idea and run with it, with it in a lot of different ways. And so like, for example, Hershey has a variety that, you know, can make these really intricate looking uh, chocolate creations. You could print a piece of chocolate in your name or in, um, in sort of almost the shape of a jungle gym, if you will. There are other varieties of this that print in sugar. I'm not hundred percent sure how they work, but you've got one nozzle that's spreading, uh, print, pushing out sugar and the other one that's pushing out water and it's crystallizing that sugar. Cool. And uh, yeah, you can look at pictures online. They're, they're really artistic creations more than anything else, but there is some serious food being made there too. I think the Culinary, Culinary Institute of America has bought one and uh, you, you know, you, anything that can be made sort of again into something that's a little so softer can be printed. And so pastas, for example, are being made pastas stuffed with, uh, you know, uh, any variety of things that, that could be put inside of a, of a pasta cheeses, uh, are being printed. And, you know, th these are, I think, interesting ideas. I think one of the more interesting parts of it is this idea of customizability. So, you know, when you, when you think about printing, you might think, well, this is, uh, some kind of evil processed food. But processed food, you know, one of the characteristics of a processed food is often that it's just homogenous. You know, it's all the same for everybody. And at least the hope with something like 3D printing is that, you know, Russ, you can have your cookie with, you know, you know your initials printed on it. And I can have mine with my initials on it. And it's not just the, the look of it, but it's also the content. So if you want a little more vitamin A and I want a little more calcium, I can do those. Um, in fact, we might even be able to put our, uh, you know, whatever medication we put, we, we need whether it's allergy medication or your cholesterol pill, perhaps we can have this sort of personalized pharmaceuticals in our uh, granola bar when we print it in the morning. So this whole idea of customizability and uniqueness is a really interesting twist, I think, um, that, that, that one could put on this idea that, that otherwise could be considered some kind of processed food. Let's move on to a slightly more controversial and maybe important area, which is, um, which is fertilizer. One of the things I... I thought about reading your book is what a great word fertilizer is. Uh, I never think about it. It's uh, right. It makes the land more fertile. Um, I'm going to read some uh, statistics here on costs, which I were that you write about that I was uh, fascinated to read. You say, uh, quote, for example, in 2014, a central Illinois corn farmer was likely to spend $173 per acre on fertilizer and $66 per acre on pesticides even on top, even on highly productive farmland, and all that was on top of the $119 per acre the farmer paid for seed. Of all the non-land costs associated with growing corn in Illinois, 30% are tied up in fertilizer. Uh, and you give a lot of other examples, but you know a lot of people complain that you know we've we've through overplanting and over farming we've drained soil of its nutrients, and we have to use these artificial fertilizer methods. Uh, talk about what what's your assessment of that argument and what's going on uh, to try to reduce the amount of fertilizer and still keep yields high. So I, 
I think there are some real concerns and, and there are some concerns about over application of fertilizer. So I, as you mentioned, it's, it's not inexpensive, particularly in the, in the years I, I cited there, like 2014. Fertilizer prices are going to vary quite a bit with, uh, with oil and gas prices. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're costly. So farmers aren't just putting the stuff on the land because it's cheap, um, but it can act as a little bit of insurance. So if I get enough rain, I want enough fertilizer there to make sure I boost, boost yields enough. Um, so the trouble is, though, when fertilizer runs off, it can get into our waterways and it can create these dead zones because it consumes, it, it encourages the growth of algae and bacteria that can consume all the oxygen in the water. So these, these are real concerns. Um, I think the, the more challenging question is, what are we going to do about it? Uh, are we going to go back to these farms of the 1950s? Um, or is there something better that, that might be on the table? And uh, when I look out there, I think most people have no idea the sort of sophistication and technological innovation that's happening on most commercial farms these days. It's really absolutely amazing. One thing I might do, if you don't mind, is take a little bit of a step back and just talk about a really interesting study that's, that's, that's been going on for over a hundred years here at, at my yeah, University of Oklahoma State. I love yeah. that. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, you know, people are worried about sustainability and, and, you know, are we going to have enough food in the future given our current practices and, and a, a really interesting um, example of that is that there was the first professor of agriculture at Oklahoma State University. He was hired in the 1890s. He started an experiment um, that runs to this day. And, and basically what he wanted to know is what happens when I plow up this native prairie land and plant wheat and just do it year after year after year and never provide any additional fertilizer. So he, he was very much interested in this question. And um, you know, this kind of research is going on all, all across the country at various universities like mine. But I just think it's, it's a fascinating example and uh, way to illustrate that there are agronomists and, and um, soil scientists that have been interested in this stuff for a long time. And the, the interesting thing about that study is if you look at the wheat yields from that study 120 years later, it's actually, we're actually getting more wheat than he did in 1890s. And how in the world is that possible? Even yeah. though he's never provided any more fertilizer and, and the answer and, and to that question is that, that we're, that they're planting new varieties of wheat on that land. So better genetics. So one way to think about that is that the improvements in genetics have more than offset the losses in soil fertility. But the good news is we don't have to accept losses in soil fertility. We can add, we can add fertilizer to it. So the, you know, the traditional form of fertilizer was uh, manure. And so the amount of fertilizer was constrained by the amount of animals that we had around. And, uh, there was this really amazing discovery in the 1900s but, but by a couple of German scientists, Haber and Bosch, and they learned how to pull nitrogen out of air. And that's the way we get most of our nitrogen uh, today. And there's a lot of estimates out there, but I, I, again, this is sort of the sort of thing that I think a lot of people don't think about, but the ability to extract that nitrogen out of the air allowed us to grow a lot more food. And and there's some estimates that suggest that probably four, somewhere around 4 billion people on this earth today owe their very existence to the fact that uh, these two German scientists were able to figure out how to get more nitrogen. So in other words, nitrogen has been the, the greatest limiting resource in agriculture, this fertilizer uh, throughout most of human history. And so now we're at this other problem that, that, that now we have so, so, so much of it that we... Uh, in some cases, overuse it. And so how, how can we cut back in a responsible way? And so I talk about a couple of different examples, but there um, is a company uh, here out of Oklahoma called SST Technology that is uh, sort of a precision agriculture company. They're a data management company. And what they allow farmers to do is to uh, keep track on, of their farmland and uh, keep data on... Um, on the amount of nitrogen in the soil in addition to the amount of water in the soil and uh, combine that with data on um, these yield monitors. So most of the time farmers of any size today when they go through and harvest their corn or wheat or soybeans, uh, they're calculating how much yield on you know every square meter, for example, as they go through that field. So you get these really pretty maps of which areas of the field are are yielding higher and which are yielding lower. And so uh, this company I talk about in my book in, in SST is 
combining all this data in ways that, that are allowing farmers to make really precise recommendations and fertilizer applications. So only applying fertilizer in those areas of the field that actually need it. And then, you know, not over applying it in other areas that don't. And, and it's really cool technology. I mean, it's, it's you know, actually all cloud-based now. Uh, uh, an agronomist can go in and use that software to make a recommendation. I want this much fertilizer in this area and this much in that other area. They send it up to the cloud and it comes down to the fertilizer applicator and it automatically makes adjustments as it's moving through that field. Um, you know, it's just really an, an incredible um, it, use of, of big data and, and modern technologies. Let's turn to meat. Uh, I'm a very uh, eager eater of meat myself. My wife is a vegetarian. Um, so we have we, we span some of the range of choices people make about their food habits in our one house. But a lot of people say, you know, meat's inefficient. You take all this corn with all this great nutrient stuff and you turn it into into a cow and the cow just it's an inefficient way to get your calories uh it's it contributes to global warming and uh, a lot of people are upset about it now of course there's two ways you could deal with it you could encourage people to be vegetarians which of course is going on all the time and my wife uh, fell prey to that as and god bless her it's i i respect that choice I seriously do. I'm joking a little bit, but I'm. I think it's a, a great thing to be a vegetarian if 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 you can be, mainly for moral reasons, not not environmental reasons. But I'm open to the possibility that it has moral consequences. I it has environmental consequences. I don't know about. But um, what's your thought on this? And um, what are the possibilities of um, laboratory grown meat, which you write about in your book, which is really interesting. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of issues um, that you brought up there. Let's let's take the first one about inefficiency, and I, I hear this one a lot. You know, this they I, it, one way it's sometimes put is, you know, feeding this corn to cows is just wasteful. You know, it's like going down to your supermarket, buying six boxes of cornflakes and and throwing uh, five of them away and only eating one. Um, I, I think that's the wrong way to think about it, um, and one way I think about it is by using a little bit of an analogy. So let's imagine we had some scientists, they, they're off searching for new plants, they say head down to the Amazon, they find some new brand new plant never heard of before. And, and this plant is an incredible producer of calories. It, it, it pumps out the calories given small amounts of fertilizer, but they get back to the lab and do some, uh, do some tests and find, oh, it's too bad. This, uh, this new plant is, is toxic to humans. We can't eat it. But the scientist goes back to the lab and, and, and comes up with a machine that can take this, this new plant and convert it into food that's really great tasting. Uh, unfortunately, this machine uses up energy. It takes a little bit of water and it, 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 you lose some of the calories in the process. Well, is this, is this scientist a hero or are they some evil villain? Well, I don't know. I think there's a lot of ways to think about this. We should really applaud the scientists for finding some really cheap way of producing calories and then turning it into something that we really want to eat. So let's call this new plant corn and let's call that machine the cow. And that's what we have. Most of us don't want to eat the corn that's grown directly in the field. Most of, most of the corn, by the way, that's grown is field corn. It's not the, the, the sort of sweet corn that we think about eating. And why do we grow this, this much corn and soybeans is another, another plant. And it's because they, they're really efficient producers of calories and protein, but they, they deliver those calories and protein in a form that we don't typically like to eat. And also the one nice thing about them is that they're in a form that's easily transportable. So we can put them on uh, trucks or on barges and send them across the world. So they're, they're great sources of calories and easily stored and transported, but they're just not very tasty. And so what we want to do is turn those into something that we like to eat. And you're exactly right. Most of us like to eat meat. And if, if you look at the data, probably at least 95% of the U.S. population are, are meat eaters. And um, I kind of agree with you. In a lot of ways, I respect someone who can give up eating meat because boy, it sure be hard for me. Um, and I suspect for a lot of people, both for health reasons, but also because it's just really tasty. We enjoy it. Um, and we're probably, we probably enjoy it because Mother Nature gave us some reasons to enjoy it. Most meat comes in a, it's a, 
it's packed full of vitamins and, and contains some fat that's good for our bodies and some things we couldn't get in other ways. And so, yeah, and if you want to look at it one way, you could say meat is wasteful. But if you look at it in another way, what, what cows do is they take, uh, they take one form of calories and convert them into another form that we like to eat. And I should say most cows throughout most of their lives actually eat grass. So these are actually calories we couldn't directly eat as humans. Um, but there are environmental concerns. So um, one of the big problems with beef is that these, the, the digestive system of these cows is such that it produces a lot of methane. So cows burp, this methane goes into the air and people are worried about the contributions uh, to climate change and so forth. And so again, we're back to this question again, is uh, this is a problem? We can all agree it's a problem. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, it's obvious uh, the answer is we just need to put a little, um, some, you know, Zantac into the, <laughs> with the 3D food processor or the whatever, so that the cows wouldn't burp as much, but um, maybe they just explode, be worse. Anyway, sorry about that. Couldn't there resist. Are some, <laughs> there are some options down that line. So uh, I know there's some scientists working on various forms of grasses, for example, that are more easily digestible for the cow. So that, that is an option. But, you know, one option is the one, one that's been re relentlessly pursued by the meat industries, which is just to get a lot more meat out of each animal uh, using less resources. And, and boy, we sure do that now. And in fact, we have um, fewer cows in the U.S. today than we had in the 1950s, even though we're getting about, uh, about twice as much meat. So we're getting a lot more meat from each cow, and that's come about through a whole host of, of technological changes, uh, changes in genetics uh, and a variety of other things. Uh, but, you know, yeah, entirely... Talk, but talk about the lab part. Yeah the, the, yeah, the entirely new way to tackle this is to say, let's just take the cow out of the equation. And, uh, and so I talked to a guy named Mark Post. He's a professor in the, in the Netherlands. He... Um, he, he found out that if you take out stem cells from, from an animal, muscle stem cells, that these cells will naturally reproduce themselves. They, they, that's what they do. So he extracts cells, these stem cells from a, from a cow, and he puts them in his per proverbial Petri dish with some food for them to eat. And um, they grow into muscle fibers. And then they attach those muscle fibers to each other. And then eventually, after a while, you've got muscles. And that's what meat is. It's just a, a bunch of muscles from, from animals. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he's created lab-grown meat from these stem cells. And the idea is that we could imagine a world where we just have a, a, a much smaller number of donor animals. By the way, it doesn't kill the animal to take the stem cells. They can still live and eat their grass and do the things they like to do while we pull out a few stem cells and then use those stem cells in a lab to produce the thing that we, that we like to eat. And... Uh, you know, I, I, I you saw say, when you say fewer animals, it's it's a lot fewer. It's not <laughs> yeah. like just less, right? That's, it's yeah, it's a radical less, reorganization but, of the beef industry. Yeah, ten, tens of millions uh, less, probably worldwide. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, um, you know, he's he's done this. He he had a big uh, media event about a year ago out in London where he tasted his, his burger in front of a big audience of of. Uh, journalists and some celebrity chefs. Uh, I actually asked him how it tasted. He said he thought it was a little dry. <laughs> and the reason is, it, once you think about it a little bit, it's kind of obvious. Um, if you have just a bunch of muscle, there's no fat in it. So uh, if you want it to be a little tastier, he's got to figure out some ways to get some fat stem cells to uh, make so some fat. I have to ask you about that event because I read about it in the book and I, it was really, it was fun. But why didn't he let someone else taste it? Is there a worry? Is, you know, I understand when you know a doctor injects himself with his own vaccine because people are scared and they don't want to give themselves, uh, you know, some disease and they're worried about it. But were people worried about it? Do you, you know, you know, you watch these cooking shows and you see all the, you know, the, the cook tastes the food, makes this great face. You, you want to say, well, well, I'd like to be the judge of that, not not the person who cooked it. So did he? Did anyone else steal a bite of it? I think there's a second uh, opinion. I think there were two or three people. So he had a celebrity chef there. I think he had a journalist, but there was a, it was a small group. There were about three or four people eating and about in hundreds watching. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that, that, if, that is the problem now is, is, uh, he can, it, it is technologically feasible. And indeed there are a couple of us companies today that are, are also working on this thing too, but it, it's, it's, it's pretty costly. Yeah, it was right an expensive to, burger, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was uh, well over a hundred thousand dollars. Sure, you'd want to share it. I guess you'd want to no, keep it mostly yourself. Of course, as as any good entrepreneur does, though, he's he's optimistic. He thinks he can get the price down to uh, about thirty dollars uh, yeah. per pound of burger. It's still a bit expensive. It uh, is. It's gonna have to, they're gonna have to do better than that. Someone wiser and 
or innovative and even more optimistic is going to have to get involved to make that a viable activity. Talk about um, – let's talk about a downside of uh, – or a not-so-attractive side of this, which is uh, the pink slime controversy. What happened there? Yeah, well, you sort of uh – stole my thunder because I, at least uh, in the, in the book, uh, the way I tell the story is I, I, I don't tell them the stories about pink slime until we get to the end. But, um, uh, so readers be warned. You've already, you've already. Spoiler alert. It's too yeah. late. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, uh, at least, at least the way I, I tell the story is, is, is through the eyes of an entrepreneur. So there's, uh, um, a guy named Eldon Roth. He grew up very poor in South Dakota he had a variety of odd jobs in the food industry. And one of those jobs was working at, in a big uh, food meat processing plant where they would make frozen meat products. So they'd, you know, take these animals, freeze them, and then distribute them around the country. And he looked around and noticed this freezing process was really inefficient. There are big warehouses that are, you know, the whole warehouse is having to be kept, you know, below freezing essentially. And uh, he had the idea of of taking this meat and running it through two metal rollers uh, to bring the temperature down really quickly. And, and the, the sort of story I tell is, you know, you've probably all seen the Christmas story where Ralphie's um, poor friend gets his tongue stuck on the metal flagpole. And that sort of tells you, you know, when something is uh, metal, it, that could be a lot colder. It can freeze something a lot colder, uh, a lot more quickly. So the same thing works with meat. If he, he would take these um, steaks or other cuts and run them through these rollers and bring them down to temperature really quick, which is, is useful because, um, you know, lowers the chance of spoilage, uh, but also sort of eliminated some of this waste of just cooling down a bunch of air, uh, if you will. So he had in, invented this technology and, and went off and created several companies to use this technology and was just looking for new opportunities. And, you know, one of the biggest opportunities out there is is ground meat. It's, you know, one of the biggest markets that exists. So if you take a, the average cow that that's that comes through about half of the meat on that cow is ultimately going to wound up as, as ground meat or as hamburger. And uh, what he, what he noticed though, was a lot of the meat from the animal wasn't being used. And you know, the, the, the problem here, the way I framed the problem is one about food waste that there are a lot of people were concerned that we throw away too much food. And that was something like that was the food wasn't actually being thrown away in this case, but it was being used in less productive ways. And that there are lots of cuts from an animal that, that are really fatty, but they do have, you know, pieces of meat, meat in there. It's just not very economical to pay someone to use their knife to cut them out. So he developed this process where um, he heated up the, the, the cuts of meat to a, not to a point that it cooked the meat, but in, in to such a point that it would um, melt the fat. And he would put that in a centrifuge and pull the fat away from the protein. And then that protein is the same protein that we have in any other of our hamburgers. He reintroduced that protein. Um, he then collected all that protein and he could mix it in with ground beef. And, and so essentially he was cutting down on food waste. And, and there are several estimates of, of uh, how much waste it was cutting down. But, but at least one that he claims, that there, his company claims, is that, that this process is equivalent of saving um, over 5,000 head of cattle every day. In the United States, might that's be how, a slightly higher estimate than the actual one, but it's, it's clearly possible. saves some. It, it's more than zero, right, definitely. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and so he had a very successful business. So he was able to to, to pull out these these useful parts of protein, and, and people were mixing them in with ground meat, and so it lowered the price of ground meat. Not only did it lower the price, it also also lowered the fat content. So this is, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a big low fat push. People thought fat was bad then. Yeah. They did, yeah. <laughs> so this was a, a, an inexpensive way to get very lean ground beef. And he had a very successful business going on. All, thing, all you know, all was proceeding smoothly. And then a series of, of uh, media stories broke uh, that most people are probably aware of. And uh, this product he was producing, the, the name they were using and, and the, the name that's still used in the industry is uh, finely textured beef, uh, lean, finely textured beef. But at some point it got the name Pink Slime. And from there on, his, you know, he ran into a, a, a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, one of those is not like the other. Uh, right. <laughs> one of them sounds yeah, kind of interesting. The other sounds awful. W what was the nature of the, the controversy? What were people upset? Why, why did they call it Pink Slime? Because it wasn't well, real meat? What was the issue? The, 
in, in a lot of ways, this is a really sad story. I think, um, you know, ha- I've been in his plant. I've seen, I've seen the process. It's actually, it's only pink because it's frozen as is any other meat that you freeze. And it's not slimy at all. In fact, um, if you Google pink slime, the image that you see is almost certainly not his product. In fact, I've talked to a lot of people in the food industry. Nobody really knows what it is, but it's probably not food. But anyway, I, I so why know, did he get why did he get slimed uh, yeah, right. for, for that? I understand part of it, you know, part of the the impact of the story came from the labeling of it as pink slime and the and the uh, some of these images that may not be accurate. But what was the issue at all? Why did anybody care? I think people didn't know about it, and when they learned this process was being used, they, they probably felt a bit deceived. And there was another aspect to the process that I haven't mentioned, which is that that one part of the process, right before they package it, they put a small mist of ammonia on oh, yeah, the top. That was it. Which, which lowers the pH, just uh, makes it so that bacteria aren't nearly as likely to live. And it was probably that that caused a lot of concern. Oh, you're putting this chemical in our food and we don't know about it and it's in all of our school lunches and, and how dare it, it sort of fed into a narrative that exists about these evil big food processors that are just trying to make a buck uh, while selling us this inexpensive unsafe food um, but you know the yeah the more you push on that story the the less it holds water so for example in a, in a given hamburger, it was more ammonia in the bun and the cheese than there is in the, even the meat where this little mist of ammonia was applied. Um, this ammonia, by the way, it's a, it's a ingredient that the FDA recognizes as generally acceptable as safe. In other words, you can, you can use it all, all you want to, uh, if you want. But if you drink it, it'll kill you. That's the problem, right? If you drink your <laughs> cleaning product, you know, you're going to you're going to be rushed to the hospital and it's the same word. So it's, it is. doesn't and sound it, so good. Uh, like most chemicals, it's the dose makes the poison. Yeah, correct. That's true of, of even things we routinely eat, whether it's uh, salt or any number of things. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, the media storm came about because it, it again, fit this narrative of big bad food um, doing, you know, almost like a jungle sort of story yeah. that there's these things going on in these meat plants that we don't know anything about. And, I, and and for me, I think sort of the sad story about it is, is this, he, he's a small business owner. I mean, he had two or three plants, but this is not some big conglomerate. Moreover, I've been a lot of food plants. His plant was one of the safest plants, uh, cleanest uh, plants. That, and he had invested um, millions of his own dollars to, to make sure his product was safe. Uh, I, I talk about these things in the book, but the he, he washes the air in his plant. <laughs> he sucks the air out, runs it through um, a, a washer before it comes out, out. His plant is pressurized to keep out um, bacteria and other problems from the outside. So, for example, when you're when you're uh, coming outside of the of the plant, you open the door to the, go to the outside. The air basically force pushes you out. <laughs> you almost, almost fell down when I was uh, there. The, the day. So this, the story that somehow it was unsafe and this guy was trying to hide things, you know, just really, I don't think fit the facts. Moreover, I, I think the, the real challenge is when you contrast it against this other narrative that we have, that we really want people to, to not waste food and we want to make use of every morsel. Here was a person doing that, you know, doing the best he could. He saw an opportunity to eliminate food waste. He did it in the best way he could and the safest way he could, won all these food safety awards. And then we vilify him for doing it. Um, yeah, well, that's it's the. Um, I think we have a primal dislike. You know, we, you talked earlier about you know I just want to eat God's food or natural food, and inevitably most of the stuff we eat doesn't uh, fit our romantic associations. Whether it's the what's really going on in a slaughterhouse or the where the hens are, how the hens are treated, or how meat's processed, it's just it's going to inevitably jar us when we come face to face with this. And people who are upset about that, I think are going to use any way they can. This, I think, is a very effective propaganda uh, effect for them. It probably turned a few more people into vegetarians as a result. I, 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 want, to turn, I want to turn for a minute. I, I want to leave a little time at the end for, for policy issues but the, that we haven't talked about yet. But I want to just say something briefly about Walmart. Because Walmart's entry into the grocery business and the and the food business is such an enormous uh it has such an enormous impact and i just want you to tell the story about uh two things really one is i'm thinking of the 
interview we did with um, with Roger Berkowitz and uh, Legal Seafoods and the the care he has to take, purely self interested or altruistic doesn't matter, to make sure that the food is is relatively safe because his brand name is very uh, at risk every day. And that's true of Walmart as well. And I, what they're doing with rotisserie chickens, which we've uh, uh, talked about in passing in a different context recently with, uh, I think it was with Robert Frank. I think that came, the chicken world thing came up. But um, talk about what they're doing with chickens, rotisserie chickens to make sure that they're safe. Yeah, well, well first, just on the scale of Walmart, um, I, th- I think their, their data suggests that one-third of, of all Americans enter a Walmart every week. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely crazy. Mind-boggling. In a, something like a one-quarter of all the food dollars spent um, in grocery outlets are spent at a Walmart. And so this, you know, this is big. Whatever they do is big stuff. And you're right. You know, we, we think, as you say, we may get a little bit to policy issues and we want stricter food, you know, standards and, and what have you. But you know, companies like Walmart and, you know, a good example here recently is Chipotle. You know, the biggest deal for them is their brand name. They've spent millions, probably even billions of dollars in the case of somebody like Walmart, developing a brand name and a brand reputation. And that's what lets them earn a little bit of a premium over over the generics or gets us, gets those one third of the me- Americans going in there every week. It's because they have a little bit of brand equity. And so they they want to protect that. And it's it's worth it to them. And as I, uh, the, the VP of food safety from Walmart told me, he said, you know, uh, the government regulations, that's like the baseline. You know, <laughs> we, we, we go way above that uh, because, you know, they've got something much larger at stake. Um, and so, you know, one of the things he talked about was um, the technologies they're using to make sure the rotisserie chickens are safe. So the old system was that the government would send around inspectors to, to test the, the temperatures on their chickens, make sure they were cooking them to a high enough temperature, killed all the bacteria. And uh, at least over one reporting period, they found out that across all their about 4,000 stores in the U.S., they had 10 government inspectors stop by to see, see if they were doing what they were supposed to do. Uh, Walmart, because they're concerned about their reputation, also paid uh, some third-party auditors to go by. And in that same time period, they're, they're, the people they paid to check up on them stopped by about a hundred times. You know, they're selling millions of chickens. So, you know, there's a there's still a good chance that the chicken you or I might have bought in the checkout line was not, uh, somebody wasn't following up to make sure it really was cooked to the temperature it was supposed to. So what they did is they implemented some um, wi- wireless uh, thermometers they give their employees, and now every single uh, chicken is temperature is checked before it's put out on the line. And moreover, that data is immediately sent to Walmart's offices where they can monitor and record everyone. So they went essentially from testing 10 chickens every month to millions. So as the, the guy that's had 10 of, chickens, but oh, the, the t- amount that 10 people could check, whatever that yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah. 10 people. Hundreds to, probably. Yeah. Yeah. To millions. Exactly. So. As as the, the the head of food safety for Walmart told me, he you know their sample size is all so n equals all. <laughs> They're testing every single one of them now. I believe it's amazing. And, uh, you know, so they can check on certain stores. You know, they have, do they have a manager at a store who who's not doing what being as careful as he should be? Are, are there maybe certain times of years or even certain suppliers maybe who? Uh, you know, I guess the suppliers would, wouldn't have anything to do with the temperature, but it's certainly no. in, in terms of of t- testing for bacteria. That's the other thing Walmart did. A, uh, one thing about their size that's interesting is when they make a change, it has a big impact not just on you know the people shopping at Walmart, but across the whole industry. So, a few years ago, they they implemented new standards for testing for E. coli and Salmonella, and there's there's some good evidence to suggest that that when Walmart enforced these higher standards, it improved the safety of all the meat <laughs> throughout the whole supply chain because because Walmart is such a big buyer. That, that a lot of these food processing plants, uh, say a beef processing plant, they're not just selling to Walmart, they're selling to everybody else too. So if they're going to adopt new safety standards uh, to, to meet Walmart, as long as they've got those standards in place, it's still going to impact the meat they're selling elsewhere. So uh, I, like you, tend to be pretty um, happy with the state of food. You know, I'm 61 years old. I remember something of what a grocery store was like in, say, 1965 or 1970. And for all the complaints that you hear, the variety of 
cooked and and unprocessed food that's available in a grocery store today, it just it's an extraordinary uh, achievement. It's just an amazing um, effect of technology and innovation and research. Uh, some of that is, of course, coming from the government or government subsidies to schools like Oklahoma State. And you talk about that a little in the book. I'm a little more skeptical, but a lot of people would say that's been a, a great thing. Uh, but certainly a lot of it has been just the entrepreneurial innovators uh, in the purely private sector, whether it's in the retailing aspect of it or the the processing. It's just it's an incredibly innovative area. And the result is lots of different kinds of food, low prices, uh, which raises the standard of living of people um, over time. And it's a, a glorious thing. So that's my perspective. The other perspective on the other side is, you know, people you call uh, the food movement. They see this as an industrial, corporate, profit-driven activity where a lot of the effects are – a lot of the negative downside effects are hidden or borne by others. And then at a different piece of this, you have uh, people like Nassim Taleb on the program here who said that we're playing uh, with fire, that, that the risks of the innovations that have driven some of these productivity changes through genetic modification are really uh, – we don't know enough about them. So what, what do you think we ought to do about that disagreement, the fact that there are people like you who, are, who think the science is on your side, things are safe, these things are not to be worried about, uh, if you want to use organic – food, you want to eat organic food, help yourself, but um, the rest of us would like to eat our steaks and eat them in a certain way, and thank you very much. And the other side saying, no, you know, you're really having the threat of an impact much beyond your own stomach and your own table. What do you feel about that, that fight, that tension, and what government should do, if anything, to adjudicate that dispute? So I, I think one useful thing is to uh, at least I try to do in this book is accept the premise that a lot of people in the food movement have that we have some problems. It's not a perfect system. You know, there's some people that go hungry. There, there, we do have some some bad environmental consequences of some of our practices. So th those problems are real, and I, I agree they're real. Um, so I think the the bigger challenge is to say what are we going to do about them, and and are the actions, are the policy prescriptions they're proposing going to meaningfully have an impact on human health or the environment. Um, before this, I wrote another book called The Food Police. Uh, it's a little more argumentative and polemical, but, um, you know, I, in that book, I sort of try to evaluate a lot of the, the policy prescriptions and proposals that people have. And I think just the unfortunate, you know, reality is a lot of the things people propose, whether it's GMO labeling or fat taxes, um, or taxes on meat, for example. I mean, they'll have some effect, but but they're not going to meaningfully, I don't think, have a, have impacts on human health and the environment that we're that we really want. At least, uh, the only way for those kind of taxes to have the kinds of impacts they want is to be so burdensome that we're really restricting people's freedom and coercing people in a way I think they wouldn't like. And, and I suppose that's one of the reasons I'm I'm optimistic about technology use is that when I look back. At, yeah, the, the increase in variety that you see there, it's also just an incredible increase in efficiency. If we can get more meat from each animal, if we can get more eggs from each chicken, um, if we can get more coin, corn from each you know, unit of land and each uh, pound of fertilizer, that's leaving more for future generations. That's uh, lowering food prices for people that, that, that have a hard time affording enough food to eat. And so, um, you know, Really, I think one of the things I'm sort of asking for here is, uh, at least among some people in the food movement, is, you know, let technology be at least one piece of the solution. It doesn't have to be the only part, but it, it hopefully should play a role in, in dealing with some of these food problems. And I, I think for whatever negative things I might have to say about about some of the things advocated by the food movement, they've done a lot of positive things too, and they've they have increased choice and variety you know, you can go to farmer's markets now, you, you can buy local foods, you can buy organic foods. Now, I think some of the arguments made for buying those are kind of silly, but the fact that those choices exist is is wonderful. And the fact that people can choose uh, to pay a little more to get those things is, is great. It's a great part of our market economy. And the government has facilitated that. 
to some extent, um, helping you know standardize labels or, or helping make sure that there are market institutions um, for these are I, th- I think are are positive. I think a lot of the big worry about food technology is not you know nobody really not not many people come out and say well I'm against the use of science in food. <laughs> no, nobody says I'm anti science. Uh, I think the concern probably if I had to be tried tried to you know be be fair about it is that it's a there's a view that the benefits of these technologies are mainly accruing to these large corporations and those benefits aren't being distributed equally to farmers and to consumers and they're causing all these externalities I, it, that's not a view I, I happen to agree with but I can understand where it's coming from and, and I suppose in terms of the, the sort of policy question I, I think the way I would look at that is you know the answer is if you don't like Walmart or Monsanto or you know Kellogg food craft foods or what have you you know in my mind the answer isn't to get rid of those companies, to ban them or to restrict them. The question is to make sure that the barriers to entry are low enough that anybody can compete with them. And, you know, one of the problems I think sometimes these big companies try to do is erect all sorts of barriers to entry. And ironically, one of the barriers to entry they do is to say, well, we need really stringent safety tests. We want to do a lot of super duper tests and have a lot of regulations before you can introduce this new biotech food. Um, That helps preserve the status quo and, and the and the incumbent firms and keeps out all the small startups who don't have the teams of lawyers uh, to, to make it through this regulatory process. So, you know, I think, unfortunately, and somewhat ironically, these calls for increased regulations and an increased uh, standards actually serve to benefit these larger companies uh, that that people are saying they don't like. And so what I'd like to see, though, is, is to have a make it easier for there to be more competition from entrepreneurs and innovators. My guest today has been Jason Lusk. His book is Unnaturally Delicious. Jason, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me on. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.